Hello and welcome to a special edition of Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, national NBA writer for the Washington Post. And we're having this podcast on a Sunday afternoon because the team I used to cover, the Brooklyn Nets, remains completely insane. And today they announced the reassignment of general manager Billy King and the firing of coach Lionel Hollins. And there's no one better to talk to about this than my very good friend, Andy Vasquez, who has covered the team for several years now for the Bergen record and does a great job. And like me, has been around for the entire time in Brooklyn the last three and a half years, which has been a steady stream of complete nonsense, including today. So, Andy, how are you? Just another day in paradise, Tim. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, man. I I have to admit, I... Uh, I was I when I saw the email today announcing this decision, I just started scrolling through in my head just the many insane moments that have gone on on this around this team ever since they moved to Brooklyn in 2012. Um, I, I, we talked about it a little bit before we started, but but is is this is what is the moment that's that's most shocking to you from our time around the team? Because I think for a lot of organizations, the announcement that they don't have a GM at all and that they fired their coach in mid-January would probably be that, but I feel like that's like fifth or sixth on the list for us. Yeah, it, it really wasn't even, it's not even up there, which is telling about covering this team. I would say the, the one time I was completely floored, and there were, there's been several times, but the one time I was completely floored was in December of 2014, when we just went to a normal pregame press conference and Jason Kidd walks up onto the podium with a piece of paper, he smiles and then tells us that Lawrence Frank has been reassigned. And uh, it was just like, did not see that coming out of anywhere. I, maybe that's a strange thing to, to pop into the top of my head. But to me, I mean, things have been so bizarre that season already with the soda and with the team just being terrible and Pearson Garnett not doing well, and then for Kid to walk up there and, and say that, that was, that to me was the most stunning moment of, of all the things I've seen here. I know it's not the, the biggest headline, but it just kind of encapsulates the craziness yeah, that you never know what's going to happen with this team. I, I agree a thousand percent. Um, people, people don't really remember. It was December 2013. It was a month into the season. Uh, Jason Kidd had been hired that summer to coach the team immediately out of retirement. And he had gone on this public campaign to get Lawrence Frank to come work for him as his top assistant, guy who uh, coached the Nets for several years when Jason was there, had a very good relationship, and was kind of seen as the perfect guy to help Jason through his initial year on, uh, you know, his initial stint on the bench as a head coach. And one month into a six year contract worth $6 million, a record for an assistant coach in the NBA. <laughs> Jason, like you said, it was it was so it was incredibly surreal. He just walks into this press conference, the pregame press conference, just regular old day, nothing special, and says, "I got a statement to read," and just announces this before before the press conference started. And they're like, "Oh, uh, okay, so what does that mean?" And it it is funny how you say that that sums up the 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 time around the Nets these last few years because I I think it does. It's just. Every day it feels like you wake up and you're not sure when the next shoe is going to drop with this team. Um, where they're just they're either going to make a crazy trade, or someone's going to get hurt, or someone's going to get fired, or someone's going to leave. I mean, it's really 
it's really unbelievable the the the, the number of things that have happened to this team um, since we started covering it. Because I mean, we both came onto the Nets beat at the same time, which was the lockout season, the last year in New Jersey, um, and and it's just been nonstop insanity ever since, right up until today. Without any without any kind of break at all. Yeah, you, you never know when the shoe is going to drop, but you know it's going to drop at some point. So. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think I don't think it's a surprise that Billy and, and Lionel are gone. I think anyone who's been around this team or watched this team for a while uh, could see that coming. Uh, it just wasn't working, and and it hadn't been for a while now. But for it to happen now in the way it did, um, and I'm sure we'll touch on this with seemingly no tangible plan going forward that to me is surprising although should it be i i mean because this ownership group has has done things like this over and over again in its time here no totally and that i just wrote a column uh for the washington post and and post a little while ago and that was essentially my point which was look you can you can fire lionel hollins and you can basically fire billy king today um, but the but nothing around this team is going to change until ownership, led by Mikhail Prokhorov, looks itself in the mirror and starts doing things differently. Because until that happens, the same cycle of insanity is just going to continue and continue and continue unabated, and this franchise is going to continue to be a complete catastrophe. Because right now, the Nets are in worse position than any team in the NBA going forward, and you can argue are in the worst team of any team in American professional sports right now going forward. It's just the next two or three years look incredibly bleak without much of a a sign of any kind of a recovery period without just awful pain in the short term. But I want to I want to <laughs> go I want to go back though um cuz you're around the team every day now. I'm I'm still living in New York, but I don't get to see you guys nearly as much unfortunately. But um you you mentioned how things haven't been working with the Nets over the last few weeks or or even months if you want to go back to the start of the season. Um, was there was there any kind of indication that specifically um, Lionel Hollins was in trouble in terms of job wise at the moment? I know there was some there were some uh, rumblings in recent weeks that his job had been in jeopardy, but it seemed like he had maybe survived that. So, um, had you being around the team every day, had you felt like this like th- this might be on the horizon, or 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 was it just a matter of? Yeah, things are things aren't going well, so it's not a shock that he's gone now. There, there is nothing, no particular warning sign. I mean, to say that that Lionel had been short with us or Kurt with us more so recently than normal. Yeah, he had been, but that didn't really mean anything. I mean, Lionel Holland's giving you short, uh, evasive answers was something that could happen a lot, as you well knew. Um, but there was nothing on the horizon. I mean, about a month ago, or, or I guess it was in mid-November. I talked to Mikhail Prokhorov through email, and he said it was too early to judge. Uh, there was no reason to make any changes at that time. Uh, you know, he wasn't ready to give up on the season. And obviously things went pretty badly from, from there. Uh, the, the injury to Hollis Jefferson really hurt the Nets. I mean, they had played some pretty good basketball for a stretch there at the beginning of December before he got hurt. I mean, when I say pretty good, they were like, Three and three over six games, which and, for them was for this team was like really good. And Hall and Ronda Hollis Jefferson, uh, the rookie forward, was like the was the one guy that you could really be excited about long term. He's a young, exciting guy, could make some highlight plays 
Um, he was a guy that you could look at and say, this is a piece we could build around long term. And it was something that fans could look at and get excited about. And like you said, when he um, when he fractured his ankle, that, that was kind of like the one bright spot that just immediately went away. Yeah, it seems like for Nets fans, they, every time they see something nice, it's suddenly taken away. Uh, that's been my experience of watching this team for the for the last six years. But it's you know everything's complex with this team. There's nothing like that's that simple. There's there's nuance to everything. Holland did not work out as as a head coach. There's no way around that. Um, you know his failure to to get Darren Williams to play for him and and like playing for him. You know I think that hurt him. Um, I think there were some things late in games. The Nets really struggle late in games. Um, and I think that's a lot of that was on the coach and a lot of that was on kind of his general attitude, which um, when things went wrong, it wasn't like Lionel was sitting there encouraging them. He kind of had his head in his hands and it was like, here we go again. And if you're putting forth that attitude, I think it can you know, transfer over to your team. But at the same time, look at the roster he was dealing with. Um, you know, he, he had to throw out Bargnani, Andrea Bargnani, for long stretches of time. He had to Jared Jack, who hasn't been a starting port guard in this league for years, um, is playing 35 minutes a game. Joe Johnson, who's played as many minutes as LeBron over the last decade, is, is 34 years old, has to play 35 minutes a game. That's obviously not effective, and it wasn't. there wasn't like there was a lot of other options out there. The roster, you know, this wasn't a good roster. It, it before the season, the Nets were, were saying, Billy was saying, Billy King was saying that this team was capable of, of maybe making the playoffs. And I don't think there were a lot of other people who were around the team as outsiders who actually believed that. Yeah, I don't think anybody so that was wasn't. complex. Right. Not all on Lionel Hollins, you know, but he, he certainly didn't work out either. No, and it, there there's nobody that wasn't being paid by the Brooklyn Nets going into the season that thought the Nets had a realistic chance to make the playoffs. I think you and I would agree that we probably both thought if everything went right, and I mean everything went right, this yeah. team could challenge for the eight seed again. Yes, if the best case scenario was was like forty five wins, if everything swung their way, no injuries, Brook Lopez is a monster, Jared Jacks figures it out. Yeah, they right. could have won. Joe Johnson remains they, a borderline all star. Like there were there were like if like every single thing worked out, but and even even probably. Even it probably wasn't even forty five wins. It was probably they come close to our match last year's thirty eight, and in the East, maybe yeah. that's enough to get in the playoffs. And once you once I mean, at least I don't know what you thought. I mean, yeah, the Nets got off to a rough start too. But once I saw the first couple weeks of the season, how much better the Eastern Conference was this year, and how many teams looked like they had taken a significant step forward from last year, it was kind of impossible to see a path to the Nets being anywhere near a playoff team. And and yeah, you're right. I don't think, you know, if you look at the situation the Nets are in, it's hard to figure out what Lionel Hollins really could have done differently. I agree that the end of the game, end of games was a big problem for this team. But while some of that goes on the coach, they also were playing a team or playing a lineup that a lot of times featured Jarrett Jack, Joe Johnson, Brooke Lopez, and Thaddeus Young. So like those are those are all guys with significant NBA experience making a lot of just completely boneheaded plays. Like Brooke Lopez, for example, in I think this is a game you were at too, in the Orlando game, I think the Nets had a chance to either tie the game or take the lead with a minute left or under a minute left, and Brooke just grabbed yeah, they, Tobias Harris's jersey and just basically pulled him to the ground. It was it's like just an unbelievably 
lazy and dumb play, and you can't have your best player making just obvious mental mistakes like that in the final minute of a game if you want to come away with any kind of wins against anybody decent at all. No, I, I agree with you. It's, there, there is blame to go everywhere. I've never seen a team that had less basketball IQ than this team. I mean, they, if there is a bad decision to make, they will somehow find a way to make it, and usually in the worst possible time. Uh, they, they do it, they've done it over and over again this season. And, yeah, there's a reason that they've been in so many of these games. I mean, you go back, the Golden State uh, historic winning streak would have never happened. It should have never happened. The Nets were up by three with 15 seconds left. You were at this game. That was the they, final game I covered on the beat. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Fitting, fitting departure. Yes, it was. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they, they can't get the ball over half court. Then they can't foul when they're up three. And then they miss a layup that would have won the game at the end of regulation. Yep. Um, I mean, that has to be maddening for him, and I understand why he might get frustrated at the end of games. Um, I just, just having been around the team and seeing uh, his frustration, I think it was rubbing off on the players at the end. That, that, that uh, maybe there wasn't just, they went into these late game situations expecting to screw up. Um, I know that's a simplistic explanation, but I, I do think there's something to it. No, I agree. They went to these late-game situations expecting to screw up, and, and they definitely met their expectations. I agree completely. I mean, look, Andy, I mean, you, you've been around these guys as much as me. The Nets locker room is full of good guys, right? But there are also a yeah. lot of veteran guys on this team who, a month into the season, looked around, and what did they see? A team that wasn't going anywhere. And... I think a lot of them just kind of resign themselves to that. And that's not, I mean, it's not really, it's not being critical of anyone. I think it's just being realistic. You know, you've got Lionel Hollins, a guy who's used to winning, a lot of veteran players that are used to winning. And I think they just kind of looked around and were like, man, what, what are we going to do? Like, we're one month into a six-month season. We're way under 500. we We're not making the playoffs. Like, we're all kind of just stuck here for a year. And I think you kind of saw that late in games. There wasn't a... There wasn't a, a thing that was rallying them together, right? Like you said, they'd get late in the games, and when things would start to go sideways, there wasn't a there wasn't a, a any kind of a uniting force that was bringing them together to be like, all right, we got to make sure we get our stuff together here, and we make the right play, and we get things done. It was more like, oh man, here we go again. We're gonna we're how are we gonna screw this up? And that that went from Lionel down to the players, and I think everybody, like you said. Um, contributed to that um and 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 led to the situation where you know this team could have easily won four or five more games probably and just could not execute when it mattered in the last couple minutes of games yeah it may have even been more than than just a few games they were they're they've been in so many games uh, up until even the last week i mean they've they've now they've started to struggle recently um even staying in games late since they lost jared jack but yeah, they, they've been a bad, a bad fourth quarter team, and uh, you know if, if three or four of those were wins, you wouldn't be talking about a team that's 17 games under 500. They'd be 11 games under 500, which is you know not that much better, but but it is better. But with everything with this team, it's it's, it's there's no simple reasons for for why they are where they are. It's um, all shades of gray. It's complex. Which yeah, it's, it's I, all, there's, their there's color so scheme is black and white, but it's all shades of gray. All the way, all yeah. the way through. Um, and, and speaking of that, uh, I, we we have to go to Billy King now. Um, I want to touch mm-hmm. on Billy's whole tenure in a second, but 
I think that the most relevant thing is to talk about today. The thing that was most stunning about this whole announcement was the line in the press release, I think it was the third line of the story, of the, the release, that said, the GM job will be left open until it is filled. So we are now about 35 days or so before the trade deadline, and the Nets have no one running their team. This is this is stunning to me, and I, I mean, I made a bunch of calls today. I'm sure you made a bunch of calls today. I can't find anybody that can tell me who is making final say on any basketball move. If the Nets got called by some team and got offered two or three first-round picks or Brooke Lopez today, I don't know who would be deciding if that was a trade they should make. Have you heard the same thing, or have you heard differently than me? No, I've, I've heard the same thing. Nobody knows what the chain of command is. Nobody knows. Um, Nobody you know, knew really this was coming until the release came out. That was incredible, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think the players knew until they heard about it through the release. I don't think, um, you know, team staff, most of them knew. And, yeah, this was, while it may not have been the, the biggest surprise to us, it was certainly uh, the kind of move that, that shook the world of this team and, and left them asking questions, you know, of, of what what's next. And it doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of, like you said, I'm not saying the right move is to trade away Brooke Lopez or Thaddeus Young and, and try to get the maximum amount of picks going forward so that, if, you know, losing in future years because they don't have their draft picks till 2019, of course, so that losing in future years won't hurt as much as it does this year. But there's nobody around to determine if that's the right course of action, if it's a possible one. Right, any trade. Let's say let's say somebody called and said, we'll give you two decent young players who have long contracts. Like, say New Orleans said, we'll give you Drew Holiday and Tyreek Evans for Joe Johnson um, to get out of their yeah. money. There's no one to take the phone call. Like, Or if some team... Heck, if some team called and said, we'd like to trade, you know, if the Cavs called and said, hey, uh, we've got LeBron James here, we'd like to trade him to the Nets, we feel bad for you because your team is such a mess. There, there's, <laughs> no one to, there's no one to answer the phone. I mean, and, and there doesn't appear to be any plan in place for that. Now, some have said to me, some people have said, well, this means that the Nets just have somebody lined up and, you know, they're going to announce them soon. I, I think they just were mad about the way things were going and just decided to make a change. And now they're sitting here trying to figure out what they're going to do next. And there just isn't any, there just isn't any plan in place. And I, I feel like, you know, we were kind of talking about how we were talking earlier about how the, the Lawrence Frank situation was emblematic of the way this franchise has operated over the years. And I kind of feel like today is a similar emblematic moment in that there isn't, like, the thing that has killed the Nets to me more than anything else over their tenure um, in Brooklyn since 2012, and even if you want to go before that to when they were in New Jersey, is that there wasn't ever one long-term plan in place. They kind of jumped from one short-term plan to another and didn't worry about anything beyond that. And this feels like a similar situation where now, okay, if they, I don't think many people expected either Lionel Hollins or Billy King to be in their job after the season. But if they had just ridden right. things out until April and fired them then, they could have gone into the offseason and said, all right, you know, we made it through the season, we moved on from these guys, we're going to go hire the best people we can, and we're going to f- try to find a way out of this mess we're in. 
by doing it now, it just feels like this organization is right back where it's always been, being looked at around the league as a team that can't get its stuff together in any way and is just kind of floating around, grabbing at possible solutions that can fix things quickly instead of having some kind of long-term plan to try to dig itself out of the hole it's in. Well, doing it now does amount to them saving face and, you know, satiating fans who have been frustrated for a long time. But beyond that, I don't see what it does. Um, You know, if they had a plan, which maybe they do, but like you said, there's not an indicator that they have a plan because if they had a plan, why wouldn't they have done this? If they decided to make a decision today, done this a couple weeks from now, once they were into their search and say that we've already been in a search or, or say that this is the guy who's going to take over. I mean, right. Or, or make it seem like they're going to, right. Or make it seem like they're going to, when, uh, Mikhail Prokhorov has a press conference tomorrow at Barclays center, they're going to announce someone as the new, whatever czar of basketball for them. And it just doesn't seem like they have someone like that lined up. Yeah, it, it, it certainly doesn't. Maybe we'll be wrong when, when Mr. Prokhorov takes the stage tomorrow, but um, it just has the feel of a hasty move that that's meant to satisfy people now. And, and beyond that, there is no real plan. And the other thing that I'm curious about is, um, you know, Billy, Billy has worked closely. Billy King has worked closely with Dmitry Razumov uh, on basketball decisions for the entire time that this franchise has been in Brooklyn. And is, is Razumov still calling the shots? Because if he is, what has anything really changed? Well, and that and that to me is the is the question That's, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And for people who don't know, because you and I have kind of lived with this for a while, um, so we we kind of we know the characters evolved intimately. When when Andy said earlier that nothing is black and white, and like nothing is obvious, and there's no simple answers with the Nets, you do not even you can't begin to understand how true that is about this team. It is a it's been a fascinating team to cover on so many levels because there is just so many different things going on at once with this team. And one of them is that the chairman of the board for the Nets is a man named Dmitry Razumov, who Andy mentioned before, who is essentially Mikhail Prokhorov's number two guy. Um, he's the CEO of his holding company, Onexum, and he he's, he's a big basketball fan, and he's kind of been the day-to-day operations guy for the Nets. Um He's the one who who was the driving force behind Jason Kidd being hired, for example. Um, And, you know, I think for anyone who wants to examine Billy King's tenure with the team, which I think we need to do now, um, you have to start with the fact that a lot of the moves he made, if not all of them, were done with one thing in mind, which was keeping his bosses happy. Now, I think the obvious response to that would be, you're the general manager. You're not supposed to just be keeping your bosses happy. You're supposed to be making the right moves for the team. And I think that that, if you want to criticize Billy, um, which many people do, I think that that is the thing that you can criticize him the most for is that he didn't stand his ground to um, to ownership on a lot of these moves and either make them be a little more patient with moves to not pay as much for the, the guys they got or to just not make moves that they made. But... Um, before we get into kind of the next steps for the Nets and um, and like you said the, the the question of you know how ownership is going to be set up going forward, Andy, 
What what is your take on Billy King's five and a half year tenure with the franchise, and and do you agree with the fact that you know a lot of the things that have that have been done have been done at the behest of others as opposed to him proactively doing it for himself? Well, I think you hit it right in the nose that he's trying to keep his bosses happy with the decisions that he made, and um, I mean where I go back to the pivotal point. I mean, there's a couple of pivotal points here. Darren Williams, when Billy King traded for him, that seemed like a good trade at the time. And I have a hard time blaming Billy King for that trade. To trade any team in the league would have made at the time. Every every yeah, single team. team. Because there's no way that there was nothing in Darren Williams' history that would have shown that he was going to completely drop off the face of the earth as an elite point guard in the NBA. If you remember at the time, if you remember at the time, Andy, Donnie Walsh said the next day, oh man, I wish I'd known Darren Williams was available after he traded for Carmelo Anthony. I mean, they were, they were similar level players at that point. They were one of, they were two of five guys that made both the 2008 and 2012 Olympic teams. So it's not like you traded for a guy who was damaged goods. Exactly. He had no idea. And if you really, want to take uh, a look at everything that's gone wrong for the Nets over the last five years, um, You can. it all comes back to Darren Williams. I mean, if Darren Williams, if the Nets hadn't tried to, to satisfy Darren Williams, they wouldn't have traded for Darren Wallace. If, if the Nets, if Darren Williams had been a little bit better the first season in Brooklyn, um, they wouldn't have even tried to trade for, for Pearson Garnett. And if Darren Williams had been happy enough, you know, if they could have kept Darren Williams happy enough to stay here this year, I seriously doubt this team would be this bad. So that's tough. I mean, for me, that's a tough thing to blame Billy King for because there was no way to know that he was going to drop off the face of the earth that much. And even as recently as when they signed him in 2012, the summer of 2012, to that max deal, like Darren Williams was still a really good player who had played in the Olympics, was about to play in the Olympics right before he signed with the Nets, and had scored 57 points in a game in the lockout year. So he had the high number for assists the- and points in a game in the lockout season. And 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 I and and he was a guy that every team in the league would have signed to a max deal if they could have, and if they needed a point guard. And I, I, I think you're 100% right, where the Nets thought they traded for Chris Paul, essentially, right? Like they, Chris Paul and Darren Williams exactly. were the two best point guards in the league by pretty much every measure at that point. Those two guys and and Derrick Rose, and if Darren Williams had stayed at the Chris Paul level, none of these things happen. None of the none yeah. of these none of these issues they have now are an issue if he's still that good. Um, and but he's and, not, and now they're and, now they're in the spot they're in. Okay, and, and I'll, since there's plenty of bad to get to, I'll get to the one other. Billy King trade that, that is not as bad as people think it is, and that's a deal for Joe Johnson at the start of the 2012 season as well. Uh, you know, Joe Johnson is probably the biggest, has been the one guy, I know he's had a big drop-off uh, in his numbers this year, but Joe Johnson for his first three years in Brooklyn was the guy they could always count on. He's the biggest reason they were in the playoffs those three years while Lopez was injured and Darren was so far in his own head that you never knew what you were going to get out of him from one day to the next. Uh, Joe Johnson was steady. Uh, of course, he wasn't worth the contract, but um, for the Nets, he was worth that relevancy for the first three years in Brooklyn. And things had worked out a little bit differently. Um, you know, they, they, if Darren had been better, they wouldn't have needed Joe to be worth the entire contract to provide 
to carry the team. I mean, that, I don't think that was ever the plan in, in getting Joe Johnson. I think that trade worked out really well. Um, it did cost them 14 picks in the draft this last year, but they were able to work around that with some of the trades they made, and, and they got Hollis Jefferson. And I agree. To, no, I was just going to say, I agree with you 100% about the Joe Johnson trade, but I think the Joe Johnson trade also is a perfect uh, snapshot of why they're in this position they're in, in that I completely agree that I mean, they traded a bunch of expiring contracts to guys who, you know, it was Anthony Morrow and a bunch of guys who aren't in the league anymore um, for Joe Johnson, who's been a terrific player for them, um, was the second best player in the Nets Heat series in the second round in 2014 by a significant margin. Um, But that also was a trade that the Nets did not need to give up, at the very least, any pick swaps in. Like, they gave up up a a Rockets-protected first-round pick um, which ironically turned into Shane Larkin, and then they gave up um, they gave up swap rights in both 2014 and 2015. Now, Joe Johnson at that point had a huge contract that that the then Hawks GM Danny Ferry was trying to get rid of desperately, and it didn't seem like he had anybody willing to take it. So, if the Nets had just been patient and just waited a little bit, I find it very hard to believe that Danny Ferry wouldn't have backed off on what he was asking for. And maybe you just get him for one pick swap. Maybe you get him for just the 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 Rockets pick. But you don't give up the two swaps and the Rockets pick for a guy right. that they're just trying to get rid of. And that, to me, comes back to, instead of telling ownership, all right, listen, we can get Joe Johnson, but we just have to be patient and wait them out a little bit and their demands are going to come down, and then we'll get them for even cheaper than we're getting them for now. Instead, there was this hubris around the franchise, which I think you would agree with, that especially in those first couple years in Brooklyn, there was a lot of, ah, we're never going to have problems with this stuff. We're going to, we have these great players. We're going to win championships. We're going to spend our way out of trouble. None of this is going to matter. So we're never we're never going to be worse than the Celtics who they swap picks with and traded first round picks to. We're never going to be worse right. than the Hawks. So we don't need who cares about swap rights cuz we're not going to be we're not going we're going to be a better team than them. And it was that hubris and that inattention to the little details and trades that I think more than anything is why this team is in the position it's in now. Well, that yeah, that definitely hurts and it, the Johnson trade I, that was again with the nuance thing. They, I think they felt pressure to get it done so quickly because they were still unsure if Williams was going to sign here, and that was part of the package convincing him to, to re-sign in Brooklyn. But still, at a certain point, is it worth it to, to give up swaps? And, and like you said, the hubris was definitely on display the next year when in the summer of, of 2013 when they made the trade for, for Pierce and Garnett. And that what blows my mind about that trade it, it still, everybody at the time would have made it, but the, the, it's like such a crossroads for this Nets organization because they had been in the wilderness in New Jersey for so many years. They come over to Brooklyn for their first season. They're 49 and 33. They're, they, they had a bad showing in the playoffs against Chicago, but they were, you know, they had the fourth best record in the East that year. They're not far off from being a pretty good team. And rather than to make a subtle tweak, they, they go crazy and make that trade that is going to saddle their organization for the next three years, which is the one for Pierce and Garnett. Um, that 
to me talks about the hubris of this team. You know, they were they were set up so well. They were in a position where with a couple subtle tweaks they would have they could have had cap space and they could have set themselves up for the future. And instead they couldn't wait. They couldn't just be good for a couple of years. They had to be really good right now. And it backfired in a big way. And it's a decision, you know, the Billy's execution, it's a decision from ownership that haunts the franchise this day. And Billy's poor execution of that trade, which was to give away the house for Garnett and Pierce when they seem to be bidding against no one else. Um, it really hurts now. And, and that's today on the day that Billy King is no longer the general manager. I think that's what he's going to be most remembered for. Oh, I agree. And and the other thing about that, Andy, is what did they do 10 days before they made that trade? Hired Jason Kidd. They hired an inexperienced head coach, a guy who had just been playing in the playoffs weeks earlier. And then, and, and, and that was done because, all right, we've got Darren Williams, we've got Brooke Lopez, we've got Joe Johnson, we've got this core to play together for a while. Let's hire this coach. We think he can be a really good coach in the future. Um, that was a situation where, you know, ownership got sold, uh, sold a story that they liked, and they got excited about it, specifically Dmitry Razumov, and he made sure that that happened. And then to turn around 10 days later and make the ultimate all-in move, the ultimate all-in move to get Pierce and Garnett, you're, you're looking at a team that, even in the moment, was making moves that were complete opposites of themselves. On the one hand, they're hiring a coach that seems like he's a kind of a long-term project as a coach, a guy that's probably going to take some time to grow into the job, but he's friends with Darren Williams. He should be able to fit with the roster. You know, we'll just have we'll bring this legendary figure back and have him kind of grow into it and be here a long time. And then on the other hand, 10 days later, you go trade all your draft picks for two mid-30-year-old guys to come in to try to win a championship immediately. Just it just it just was it just was like let's just spray let's just spray various options around and hope that some stuff sticks and turns into a long-term plan and I that's why like you said I mean that that that, that trade was the same thing. Uh, the Celtics had until July 1st to decide whether or not to waive Paul Pierce. Kevin Garnett had a no trade clause. There was no market for those guys. They, the Nets had all the leverage, but they didn't use it because they didn't think they had to. And they was like, yeah, we don't need these picks. We'll just trade them, and we'll get these guys, and it'll be great. We'll have a big press conference, and look at all these stars we have. And, you know, it it was decent for a year, and then when Jason Kidd left, they decided they didn't want to spend, they didn't want to spend the money on the team anymore, so then they don't bring back Paul Pierce. They trade Kevin Garnett six months later, and... You know, within a year and a half, none of the none of the main figures who were on that stage were on the team anymore, and now the Nets are just stuck with this bill that they're going to be paying for the next. You know, like you said, they don't have their pick until twenty nineteen. So not only this year, but next year and the following year, they either have to go out and try to get some players to come play for them, or they're just going to repeatedly be giving high draft picks to the Celtics. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible the situation that they put themselves in. And uh, the common thread behind all these moves, and that's why I'm so interested to see what happens next. The common thread behind all these moves is they did the thing that would get them the most attention at the time. Hiring Kid is a big press conference, big headlines. 
get people excited. But, you know, nobody knew what kid was going to be. And it, it, it turned out to be a pretty good coach, it seems. But for those first two months, it, it certainly didn't seem that way. And and Pierce and Garnett, bringing them here, that's, you know, you all, we, we all saw the billboards. We all saw the splash that made around the league. They were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Um, and that that was nice, but that team never, as good as as well as they played the second half of the season, they never got anywhere near the expectations that were set. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next with the Nets because the if they if they just make a splashy move, it's going to be difficult to believe that anything's changed. They're just doing the same thing all over again. Um, if they make a quieter move try to bring in someone who's proven. Uh, I think that would actually be a, a good sign, you know, but it's, it's such a complex situation because a proven GM might be, you know, scared away a little bit by all the things that have happened here with ownership. And, and if the Nets wants to hire a coach tomorrow, I would have a hard time as a, as a proven coach taking a job here, not knowing who my GM is. I mean, there's just so many, there's so many factors. That's why it's, so interesting to see what's going to happen next. No, I agree. And 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 for a lot of you listening, I'm sure you've seen Mikhail Prokhorov press conferences before. They're usually entertaining affairs. He likes to tell some one-liner jokes. He usually has some some witty comments uh, prepared for whatever the situation is. Um, I don't think that's going to be the case tomorrow, uh, Monday morning in Brooklyn. Um, Prokhorov's advised very well. I have a feeling that He's going to be very serious about the situation the team is in. Um, and you've alluded to it a few times, Andy. Um, I'm sure we'll both be there tomorrow. But when when you, when he gets up on the stage tomorrow, and assuming he's, sit, you know, he's at a podium talking or whatever in front of the reporters, what do you want to hear from him as a, as a guy who covers the team? What, what, do you think, what do you think needs to be said? Um, and, and what do you, what do you think they should do now moving forward? Well, the first question for me would be who's who's going to be in charge of making basketball decisions? Uh, is he willing? To, I mean, he's tried to control it from Russia for the last however many years, five years, six years since he bought the team, and it hasn't worked out. Is is he going to continue to have Dmitry Razumov in charge of making those decisions, or is that something that also changed today and, and just wasn't mentioned? in the press conference or, in, or uh, rather in the statement. Um, I, I'd, I'd want to hear what he said in his statement today that they've learned from the last six years. I want to know what he learned. And, and it doesn't seem like they've learned because they've made so many of the same mistakes over and over again. Um, I, I'd want to know if he thinks that Brooke Lopez and Thaddeus Young are guys that they can build around because as of, you know, five months ago, four months ago, he thought that was the core of a team that could play in the playoffs when nobody else thought that. And now it's, it's been pretty clear that, you know, they don't have enough talent right now to compete. So is he comfortable building around Lopez and Young, or is any move open for interpretation? Could they be traded for Pitts? I mean, um, there's just so many, there's so many questions about where this, the direction of this team is headed. And that would be where I'd start. Um, I'd want to know if, if he regrets buying out Darren Williams. Uh, I mean, it did save them a lot of money, but does you think the team would have been a little better this year and maybe more appealing to free agents if 
you know, they weren't 10 and 27. I mean, I don't think they would be 10 and 27 with Darren Williams. I'm not saying they'd be a ton better, but. They'd undoubtedly be, they would undoubtedly be better. I mean, I, I don't know if you felt this way. I've been kind of amused by the, all of the many Darren Williams resurgence stories this season. Um, really because, you know, you and I have both covered this team for a few years and after a while, people basically just liked making fun of the Nets for a variety of reasons. And, Absolutely. And, and, you know, if you look last season, for example, Darren Williams, his PER last season was 15.73. His PER currently is 15.77. So, you know, I mean, he shot 36%, 36.7% from three. He's shooting 36.2% from three. I mean, he's shooting a little better on shots in the paint. He's averaging less assists. His numbers are essentially the same as last year. But people are acting right. like he's made this grand resurgence because he's playing in Dallas. No, he just doesn't have a max contract anymore, and he's not playing for a team that people like to make fun of. So instead of it being a situation where he's looked at as an underachiever, he's looked at as, oh, look, Darren's in this new situation, and he's playing fine, so things are great. And I'm not, I have nothing against Darren Williams. That's fine. Like, uh, he's a... I had never had an issue dealing with him as a as a player. I'm happy he's happy in Dallas, but it is just kind of funny to see the prism through which the Nets are viewed. And if Darren Williams was on the Nets playing, you know, Shane Larkins had a half decent a decent season as a backup guard. But if Jared Jack had been playing backup minutes and Darren Williams had been playing starter minutes for the Nets, there's no question this team is better this year than if. You know, then the alternative, which was things got so untenable, as you mentioned earlier, between Darren and Lionel Hollins and Darren and the Nets organization, that everybody did just kind of need to move on. And the fact that they did left them in a situation where they lost a significant asset without getting anything back. Yeah. I mean, my theory, I, I'm kind of out on an island on this one alone, probably, but I thought that the Nets, you know, they've already paid so much into luxury tax over the last three years in Brooklyn. Um, you know, Darren is on the fourth. This is the fourth year of his five-year contract. He had a player option for next year. If he was so miserable, I would have made him play through it this year. I mean, th- this isn't like a surprise that the Nets are bad without him. He missed um, he missed about 12 games last year, and I think the record was 2-10 and 10 when he was out. They were not a good... Whenever Darren Williams didn't out. play the last couple of years, the Nets stunk. They were a disaster. Pretty much. And Pretty even much. Nets fans didn't want to hear that. But it, it was true. So it's not like a surprise that the Nets weren't going to be good without Darren Williams. Because for as much as he struggled the last couple of years, he was still a better-than-average point guard. And he knew how to get Brooke Lopez the ball where he wanted it. And he knew how to set up guys better than anybody they have in the roster now. So my theory was he's got two years left on the contract. If he's that miserable after this year, you go in, you pay, you pay the extra luxury tax for this year to be decent, so you're not selling a disaster to free agents. And they could have negotiated a buyout with him on the final year of his contract after this year, when he would have been obviously glad to go. And if he didn't want to negotiate a buyout, he could have just, you know, not taken the final year on, on his contract. I, I think they would have been in a better situation after this year. They've already paid that much in, and there's no incentive to be bad at basketball this year. That's my personal take on it. But, of course, he was completely miserable. And I don't think Darren was ever the kind of guy who was going to corrupt younger players. 
one of the lines the Nets wanted to put out there after he left is that they didn't want their younger players around him. Um, I think that's kind of garbage. Darren is the kind of guy who would sit in the corner of the locker room and sulk, not like go and corrupt a younger player. Right, exactly. Uh, Here was the thing, right? The Nets saved $60 million this year cutting Darren Williams the way they did. Right. I mean, that's what it, that, it was a $60 million decision. It was, do we keep Darren Williams and hope we can make the playoffs, or do we let Darren Williams go and save $60 million? When Darren Williams left the team, you knew that this team wasn't going to be a playoff team unless every single thing came together for them. And given the situation they were in pick-wise, like you said, it was hard to justify from a, a winning standpoint that that was the right move to make from a basketball perspective. I do think it was probably better overall from an organizational perspective to just say enough with him and move on, but it, it wasn't going to help them in their in their attempt to try to win games, and it did kind of signal a change from ownership from you know the, the hubris they had before that they were just going to spend their way out of any trouble they had. You know, it was pretty clear that they they had no interest in spending their way to be a mediocre team, and that's right. what that's going to cause them to give up a high pick. Now, um, let's let's shift quick before we get out of here. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the past and a lot about the present as far as the future goes with this team. They obviously don't have a coach now. Uh, Tony Brown's the interim coach for the rest of the season, unless they hire somebody. They currently have no one answering the phones as a GM, so they have to hire a GM at some point. Um, as you see it right now, um, we'll start with this. Who do you think that they should go after um, You know, and, and try to get to fill those two jobs? Well, I think the right move would be to find someone from an established organization who has learned the ropes under uh, a team that's been successful before, a, a young, maybe a younger guy, who hasn't got an opportunity to GM, and and then go out there and let him hire the coach and hopefully make the right decision. I mean, there's some really good coaches out there. Tom Thibodeau, to start with, who, who have been proven um, and and done good jobs with teams. Uh, you know, even Scott Brooks. I mean, there's, there's some guys out there who are good coaches, uh, proven. And, of course, I don't think the Nets will do that because they've shown no history of making – a decision like that. I mean, I think... Well, that was my next question. So that's what that's yeah. what you think they should do. What do you think they I think will they do? Should, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think John Calipari is a guy whose name is not just out there as a, as a courtesy to anybody. I mean, I think he's a real possibility. From everything I've heard in, in recent months, um, Brett Yormark has more influence around the organization um, than he had in the, in the more recent past. And he has well-known ties with um, with Calipari. He did a and recent Calipari, interview with Calipari where he basically spent the entire interview trying to say John Calipari was some form of Jesus um, yeah. while sitting with him exactly. in the interview. Um, and, and I think it's, it's little... Like I think there's No, I think there's little doubt that if it's up to Brett... Uh, John Calipari will be given the keys to the Nets' kingdom uh, this spring. If it's yeah, up to and that him. would require, yeah, and that would be him taking the, both roles. You would think, and, and a whole lot of money to do it. I mean, I'm, I think free agents would like to come play for Calipari, but I'm not sure about his 
you know, record as a coach. I just don't think think you should have anybody doing both jobs. I mean, not even a knock on, it's not even a knock on Calipari necessarily. I don't know how, I don't know many people that really think that would go very well. I tend to be in that camp. Um, I think he's he's kind of in a perfect situation in, in where he's at, and I think it, that would be the best thing for him to stay in. But that being said, I just don't think this is a job that anybody can take on by themselves anymore. Um, there's just too many things that a general manager has to do, and there's too many things that a coach has to do. To try to do both of them, I just think, is asking for huge trouble. I mean, look at what's, look at what's happened with the Clippers, with Doc Rivers. Um, you know, that hasn't gone the greatest. You know, you, you look at the team... You look at the teams that are successful right now, right? You've got uh, you've got Bob Myers working with Steve Kerr in Golden State. You've got R.C. Buford working with Greg Popovich in in San Antonio. You got Sam Presti working for a long time with Scott Brooks with the Thunder. You go down the list, and you've got a GM and a coach that are on the same page and are working together. And I think if you're going to have a successful, stable organization. That's what you need. You need to have somebody very good in both jobs. And, you know, going out and chasing, like you said before, I think they probably need to get somebody with experience just because it's such a mess of a situation that I I, I would prefer that I have someone who's kind of been through it before as opposed to having to try to give some person who's never done it the task of trying to dig out of this hole. But if they find somebody that's young or, or that hasn't been a head guy, that they think is the guy to do the job, then by all means, go do it. And and get yeah. somebody good and, and give him the autonomy to do the job and not meddle in his affairs. But That's they, the most important thing. Right. It, but if they go far. but if they go chase some star name like Calipari or even somebody like Tom Thibodeau, who's obviously a terrific coach, but if they just go throw everything at him and say, All right, Tom, you're gonna run the whole team and they don't have the infrastructure put in place around him to allow him to do what he's great at, which is coaching, and have somebody else doing the day-to-day. Like, even in Detroit, Stan Van Gundy is the coach, and he is in charge of basketball ops. But they have a, a, a guy who would spend a long time as a GM in the NBA, and Jeff Bauer, who's the G- day-to-day GM of the team. So it's so Stan, is, Stan isn't necessarily in it every day on the personnel side. He he might have final say, but there's at least uh you know a strong buffer there that he has a good relationship with. And if you're going to go get somebody like Thibodeau or Calipari, I think you need to pair them with somebody like that that can really do the GM job, because otherwise you're just going to be stuck in, like you said, kind of the same star chasing situation they've been in in the past, chasing one short term, let's satisfy everybody fix after another, and. That's going to keep putting themselves back, putting the Nets back in the same position they've been, where they just keep going around in circles with just one mess after another on their hands. Yeah, I think, like you said, it's it's the most important thing that they can do is to give whoever whoever takes over, you know, full control of the basketball decisions without meddling. I think that that hurt the most. And I'm with you. I don't think it's a job for for one person to do both. I think that's that's too challenging in today's world. And if they were to do that, a situation like the Van Gundy one in Detroit is the way to go, where you have a guy uh, running the day-to-day GM stuff while the, the bigger guy may have, you know, final say over it. Right, right, exactly. So, all right, well, Andy, I'll let you go. Um, 
this has been great. It's been good to catch up. I'm sure I'll see you at the uh, the press conference tomorrow, uh, where and we'll see what we'll see what uh, Mikhail Prokhorov has in store for the Nets and us and everyone else. Um, but in in the meantime, where can people find you on Twitter? And what would you like to plug? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Andy underscore Vasquez, and uh, that's about all I'd like to plug. <laughs> wow! Do you have any parting yeah, shots for I'm for Twitter? I'm not. No, go ahead. No, I'm I'm not good at the whole uh, self promotion thing. I, I I need to get better at that. So, but yeah, you can check me out on Twitter. I'll try not to complain about the Detroit Lions too much, and hopefully my head stops spinning by the time that press conference starts tomorrow and I can make some sense out of all this. You and me both. Before I let you go, um, as a, as a longtime uh, Detroit Lions fan, what would your uh, advice be to fans of the Bengals and uh, more specifically today, the Vikings be after a pair of just unbelievably awful losses um, that they both experienced over the last 24 hours? I can give them no advice, but I will say <laughs> that I enjoyed it immensely. And I do, I'm a sad, sad, pathetic football fan, and I enjoy other teams' misery very, very much. So, um, yeah, that made me happy. That's all I can say. And you, do, you have any, <laughs> do you have any messages for, uh, for our mutual friend and my colleague, James Wagner, before we go? Uh... I just want to see if James listened this long. So if you listen this long, James, I expect a text from you. I hope you're doing well. I miss you, buddy. I I am sure that James will not be listening to this because he'll be off doing way more important things involving uh, relief pitchers for the Nationals <laughs> or some other some other baseball importance at this point. But um, well, Hopefully it, he's on the golf course working on his swing. I, I doubt it. I was in the office last week. He was in there pounding away at, uh, at potential moves for – I don't know, extra relievers or something. It's James is James it's is the always hardest working big, man in show business. James is always on, as you know. Um, but Andy, this has been great. Uh, th- it was good to catch up with you. I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow, man. Thank you. All right, man. Thanks, Tim.